uh, joining us. We're going to start with a live stream in just about two minutes. I want to make sure everything kind of syncs up. We're just kind of going over a last minute stuff here. This is the Chariot Tech Chat Tuesday. It's going to start up in just a couple minutes. And, all right, I think we're good. Maybe just get these links open. That's perfect. And we'll start in just a moment, folks. Chat Tuesday starting in about a minute. If I was managing trains, Sujan, that would never run on time. <laughs> They'll run almost on time. And I'm a drummer. I have no excuse for this. Right, let's see. I think we're ready. Time is overrated. It is, isn't it? And it's a flat circle from what I've just heard. All right. <laughs> I don't know where that comes from, but it sounds cool. All right, welcome everybody to Chariot Solutions Tech Chat Tuesday for Tuesday, since it is a Tuesday, November 10th. I'm Ken Rimple, and I have with me today Sujan Kapadia. Say hi, Sujan. Hey, everyone. Um, why don't we tell him what your role is here? So, so uh, you know, we, we had you on. You did the dev news for a long time, but tell, tell the folks at home what you do for a living. Wow, what I do for a living. Okay. So, yeah, um, <laughs> my name is Sujan Kapadia. I work for uh, Cherry Solutions. I've uh, been with Cherry for nine years. Um, do a lot of different things, you know, work with our consultants on software projects, work with our sales team on proposals and getting business in, uh, work on internal career development, help the guys out. Pretty much with, uh, we wear a lot of different hats at Cherry. We're a small company. We all mm -hmm. are very tech-minded and tech-focused. We're, you know, we lovingly call ourselves a bunch of geeks. So um, we kind of do it all. Yep. Well, welcome, and I appreciate your coming on and spending some time with me on the dev news part of this stuff, too. Uh, it's really great. So we're going to yeah. have a tech chat dev news session today. Uh, before we start with the actual developer news, I want to go over a few things. Um, let me just share my screen here. Uh, and I have a couple of announcements from the Chariot side of things. So first of all, uh, Chariot has some new content online. Uh, first would be, uh, let's see here, blog. There we go. So we have a uh, 15 minutes with, uh, these are the series of uh, uh, interviews that Tracy Wilson Rossman mostly does, and they're, they're focused on kind of developer to uh, business interaction. So she has a couple of new ones. She's got a 15 minutes with uh, Lanaya Nelson uh, from Motion Insurance. And she's talking about how uh, they harness drivers, telematics, and GPS data, and how that's disrupting the auto industry. So that's a, a good interview. We also have one with Stacy Mosley on data analytics and real estate, uh, and especially in the age of COVID, things are, uh, you know, things they have to deal with there. From our uh, Java at 25 event, just want to let you know that uh, the Java 25 event that we did uh, with ourselves and with Brian Getz from Oracle is online now, both uh, at our website and on YouTube. Uh, and so you can take a look at both videos for that. And also we have an additional resources page. All of this is available at Chariot Solutions website under blog. If you go to resources blog, that's how you find it, along with literally, I, at this point, it's got to be thousands of additional uh, topics that we, as developers, as geeks, we all talk about various yeah. different things. So yeah, there's see. a lot of stuff on there now. It's awesome. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's kind of a, a bit of a renaissance of blog posts lately, which is great. Also wanted to point out our YouTube channel. If you go to youtube.com slash chariot solutions, um, you can see that we've got a number of pieces there. Uh, obviously our 15 minutes with, so we have different playlists. And so just to kind of point out a playlist that we have here, we've got our tech chat Tuesdays, all of which you're watching now. You can watch all of them going back to when we started these up in, uh, July, 15 minutes with our Java 25 retrospectives, all of our Philly emerging technology for the enterprise videos from 2020, 2018, 2019, 2017, et cetera, all the way back, I think, 2015. Uh, and uh, other screencasts as well for our IoT event, uh, uh, RxJS resources we put up there a while back, and so on. So tons of stuff. You don't have to register. You can just go to youtube.com slash Solutions and take a look at our content there. So that's that. Uh, that's all the, the big announcements. Uh, right now, I don't have any additional events coming up that I have a date for. So when I do, you'll hear about them here. Uh, you can follow us online on Twitter at, at TechCast. Uh, that's the other place we put things. Uh, and at Chariot Solution, without the S, is our official uh, Twitter. But at TechCast is where I will tweet out things that come up from time to time as well. All right. So with that said, why don't we go through a few news items? Uh, first of all, uh, we have TypeScript 4.0. Now, in August, uh, Microsoft slash, well, the TypeScript organization, I don't think it's uh, Microsoft anymore, but uh, the TypeScript 4.0 project was released, um, so we've been on 3.x for a while. Um, and so just to kind of clear the air here, there's a nice announcement here. We'll put this in the show notes. Um, uh, TypeScript is a language on top of JavaScript. It's a light typing language on top of JavaScript. goes through a compiler, uh, and then it takes all those things and turns it into pure JavaScript. But also, as you're compiling, finds all sorts of problems you might have if you get types wrong. Um, setting up interfaces and classes and methods and things like that, and making sure that all the typing and all the function assignments are correct. Um, so it's it's like a superset of ECMAScript 2019, 2018, uh, with basically data types. Its syntax is similar uh, to Scala-ish syntax and Objective-C-ish syntax, and then it uses, you know, for types, it uses variable name, colon, type name. But uh, if you haven't done anything with TypeScript, it's definitely something to check out. But I've, TypeScript, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no. I was just going to say that I've only had a few instances where I've got to work with it kind of at the surface level, and I've loved mm -hmm. it. It's a, I would never want to go back to doing what you called pure JavaScript, which is an oxymoron to me. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. Purely not as functional <laughs> or purely not as typed. Um, yeah. What's interesting is that, that the tricky part about TypeScript, just as a side note, is it doesn't run at runtime. You know, it's just, it's running JavaScript at runtime. So there are things that you can do to kind of circumvent the TypeScript language because it really is just running JavaScript at runtime. But most people don't do that. Yeah. Um, in 4.0, there's a number of different good things. And so this is all the, the new stuff that came out. Uh, but rather than like regurgitate all these, um, we have a TypeScript blog entry, TypeScript 4, what I'm most excited about from Fernando Duglio. Uh, and so he had a really good yeah, couple minute read here. Um, and what's interesting is they now do property type inference from constructors. So this is a nice little feature. I'm going to make this a bit bigger here. But let's say you have a class called person and you de declare that you've got three variables. You don't necessarily have to type all the variables. If somehow there's a definitive path where you know, it assigns maybe the full name from the property, which is a string, so that gets a string type. And then first name is a split, 
and the array uh, that comes back, it takes the zeroth entry of the array, which is the first name. That's a string type. And then the last name is the second element in the array, and that's also a string type. So Can pretty I ask interesting. A so, yeah, go ahead. Does the uh, so if I were generating documentation from TypeScript, does the inferencing or compiler run before documentation generated? So I'd still get you know the types for each of the properties and the documentation. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> being being that I I do a lot of coding of things for experiments that I don't document as much. Um, I would hope that it would do that because okay. it should be able to document what it infers. That's a good question. I, I, my guess is that it would do it before. Okay. And here's the thing. If you've got a variant path, right? So if the path could change, right? Then it can't really type, it, uh, get a type uh, set for it. So I believe these would be any's. Um, but the bottom line is that, you know, and if you don't, uh, if you don't have the any type enabled by default, that would probably fail compilation because you might not, you know, for whatever reason, math.random might return a, a zero falsy value. So it TypeScript's compiler says, you know what? I can't guarantee that path is hit. So I can't do the type inference. So that's one of the bigger things is this type inference thing, which is interesting. Um, then we have labeled uh, tuple elements. So this is another interesting thing. So if you define a function with a rest parameter, dot, 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 meaning everything at the end is, a, is an array, um, that's kind of like your tuple. Um, the intent's not always clear. All right, so if you do like a sum and your fun function sum has a params uh, rest parameter and you type it as two numbers as a tuple, it doesn't really say what they're supposed to be uh, because we didn't give an actual type it just, or we didn't give a label for the type. So we don't know this is, this is param zero, param one, or maybe this is like A or B. So it doesn't help a lot. Um, so just the tooltip comes up and says, well, we got param zero is a number, param one is a number, um, but you can't really read what the intent was. In TypeScript 4, you can actually give them labels. So x is number and y is number, or min and max or height and range and things like that. So you can actually give them labels that might be useful for you as you're setting these things up. And now when you do the code fill in, you get more information here. All right. So that's interesting. Um, you know, you can also now do type level overloads. It's starting to get scallity, I think. But uh, notice now you can say, well, I've got person params that's either, you know, name and age or name, age and address or name, age, address and country. And then when I go to do the code fill in, now it gives me the three different options there to pick for the signature as I'm doing code fill in features in Visual Studio Code. And I'm sure... IntelliJ would pick up this stuff as well at some point, uh, but definitely in Visual Studio Code because the, the people who are creators of TypeScript, um, and I'll talk about this in a second, they dog-fooded TypeScript with the Visual Studio Code team. Well, we'll get to that a little bit later, but that's why there's such a tight integration between the two. So is it essentially just adding optional parameters, or can the types, can they be totally mutually exclusive what each of the property, sets of properties are? Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question whether they could be completely different or not. Okay. It seems like based on this pattern, they wouldn't be. Um, right. But that's a good question. Uh, yeah, something to look at anyway, definitely. Um, and there's some other stuff here, too, as well. Um, I'm not going to see... Whenever I see something, it took me a while to understand it. And we're doing a Dev News article. I'm just going to say we'll skip that one. Um, but uh, nice blog entry about this. The other thing is that I wanted to talk about is that there's a really good interview with Luke Hoban um, he is a CTO of a company called Pulumi right now, 
but he was one of the co-founders of TypeScript. So this is like an hour and 20 minute interview with Luke. And, and the interviewer asked some really good questions. Um, he also, what's great about this interview is if you're not really uh, on for watching an entire uh, podcast or listening to an entire podcast, he has an entire transcript in here as well. So that's really great too. So you can take that and read it if you'd rather consume that. But there's some interesting things that uh, came out of that interview just to kind of whet your appetite. Um, so some of the things they, they talk about in here is, you know, how they started. So they were, at the time, they were working at Microsoft doing kind of internal tooling. And they were using the, the Google Closure compiler and they wanted better tooling for things for their teams, uh, for the Microsoft Visual Studio Engineering team. Uh, and so they began building this thing that be, will become TypeScript uh, internally only. Uh, and it had a name. Uh, now I can't find the name. But he'll give you the, the, the beta name. It was, it was a European town. Um, then they talked about the fact that uh, Anders Helsberg, who is uh, the developer who at Microsoft took off with the concept of, of doing a, a, an IDE written in JavaScript. He's actually the guy that wrote Turbo Pascal, if you want to go way back in wow. history. So Anders, uh, he was a C-sharp guy. Yeah, that Anders. Um, so he was doing C-sharp and, and .NET for many years, really liked JS, and he wanted to build a IDE in it, but he didn't have typing, so he couldn't do a lot of refactoring. So his team at Microsoft was the first big team to say, hey, Luke, we want to use your type inference engine to build our IDE. And so he is the reason why there's such tight integration with Visual Studio Code and TypeScript. And now, in fact, the latest releases of, type, of uh, Visual Studio Code are written completely in TypeScript. So those are some of the things you'll find out and, and hear about when you uh, watch the, the, the uh, podcast. It's really good. Wow. All right. So that's that. Um, why don't we talk about self-driving cars a little bit? I believe that's next on the list, right? Yeah. So ahead, uh, just full disclaimer, um, I own a Tesla Model 3. I don't have the full self-driving package. Uh, when I bought the car, it was pretty much vaporware, and for a long time it was vaporware. It's only gone up in price since then, so you're paying more and more for vaporware. And now it actually looks like there's something real. So anyway, recently Tesla released a full rewrite from the bottom up of their full self-driving software. They have their own custom hardware, their own custom chipset. Um, the new rewrite, which has been released out to beta to, I don't know, probably several hundreds of cars. It, it, you know, it's very slow roll through. Um, now takes all eight cameras, the sonar, the radar, and integrates them into one video sequence. So, and then it goes through some cool machine learning black box neural networks and stuff. So what it used to do was each frame of, of the different cameras and everything were analyzed. And then you identify the objects in that frame and you use it to figure out what to do next. And then you reanalyze the next frame. So there wasn't like any stitching of the frames together to understand trajectory path prediction. Now it's taking all of that and over time, which is why they call it 4D space and time. Mm. It's actually taking the whole video feed and merging it into one thing and training and learning off of that. And if you search on Twitter for hashtag FSD beta, you will see all the videos of people that have the beta software loaded. Um, you know, the, the chosen ones, so to speak, <laughs> using it in like in neighborhoods and cities on highways. And sure, there's a lot of edge cases where it doesn't work yet, but for what it's been able to do so far, it's 
absolutely amazing. And it finally feels like, okay, they may be onto something here because Elon's been kind of promising for like probably four years now that, oh yeah, next year is going to be out. We're going to have a fleet of robo taxis and you're going to be able to like basically lease out your, you know, rent out your Tesla as like an Uber thing on its own. And that's never happened, obviously. And that's going to take, I think, many, many years for something like that to occur. Um, this is not, you still have to have your hands on the steering wheel the entire time. Okay. You can't not pay attention. You have to take over and intervene when it can handle the situation. So basically you have to be fully paying attention the whole time, which is why like, I don't want to pay 10 grand to pay attention the whole time and now worry about it making a wrong decision and taking over right. just in time. I think can it's just amazing what it's doing though. I mean, yeah, the, it, the amount of processing it's doing. Is it's staggering. absolutely crazy. Um, so wow. that, I think they've been working on for a couple of years now, but just the fact that how much data they're now taking in, the fact that they are the only company that has a fleet of actual vehicles out there getting real world data, not in like very contrived or geofence scenarios. They're getting data from all these cars all the time. So I think they're definitely onto something. And, you know, credit goes to their senior AI director, Andrew Karpathy. I'm butchering that name. I don't know how to pronounce it, but. Um, he's big in the AI and ML community and he does a lot of talks and stuff for Tesla, but he's kind of the mastermind behind a lot of that. Um, so it's interesting. Recently in another article I was reading on MIT, uh, technology review, Jeffrey Hinton, who's kind of the father of deep learning and neural networks. Um, he's an interesting guy. He's, he's, I, it, I, I'll keep my comment, my opinions to myself, but anyway. <laughs> He, okay. he kind of thinks deep learning has proven itself. Neural, like for many years, people were like, ah, neural networks are not doing anything. They're not going to go anywhere. You're, you're crazy. You're smoking crack. But now he's like, look, the whole world is using it. Everyone's basically bowing down to me and I'm awesome and neural networks are awesome. <laughs> it's, oh, no. it's, how he, it's how he comes off now. But he thinks like there's pretty much no problem that deep learning can't solve or learn. Um, I don't think there's any silver bullet, as we all know, but it's pretty scary the number of things deep learning is able to do with robotics and genetics yeah. and and you know uh self-driving for example it's interesting the ethical concerns that are going to come up right that's and i'm sure already have like you know legally what happens when there's an accident involving a self-driving car where does the liability reach you know there's things like that that would come up and yeah you know what is ethically acceptable do we want to have you know, self-driving cars on back roads, for example, where a mistake could, right. you know, kill somebody in the other lane right. or something. Anyway. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting but, thing because you got to have your hands on the steering wheel so insurance companies stay happy and, you know, right. you can, it's always your fault. But yeah. at the same time, let's say the car at, on average is better than humans or makes less errors. You, you raise a good point. Like even then, if the computer makes an error, why do we think that's worse than a human making error? We're still going to treat it differently. So that, that's an interesting thing. When the human bought the computer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it's like, exactly. it's an extension of what you're doing. So uh, it's, that's going to be, real, yeah. it's going to be really a, an interesting time for philosophical debate there. Yeah. Um, very cool. All right. Nice. We have a, we're going to go back to tech for a second. Um, let's talk about testing React hooks. Uh, so hooks, let's talk a little bit about like, I'll do like a high level overview. So in, Web front-end frameworks, single-page app frameworks like React and Angular and Vue, there are different ways that each of these development teams choose to create components. And components being things you place, widgets you place on the screen, or you know screens or buttons or collections of, of, of visual components. And so 
the classic way that a lot of these uh, groups do it is they create classes and the, the object slash class is the definition of the component that gets slapped somewhere on the screen or aggregated into a larger component. Um, what React did a couple of years back is they released in React 16 the concept of functional components. Well, it was, they were there before, but purely functional components. Uh, one thing they couldn't do before is they couldn't deal with things like state and side effects. So they were really just a way of saying, if this state just displays something, and this function, sorry, if this component just displays something, I can make a function out of it. I pass it its data. The function just renders the data. That's all the function does. Well, people wanted to take that further, and they wanted to say, well, you know what? I don't like creating classes every time I build a new component. So can I just have a function, but then have extra special functions I can throw in there as hooks so that I could do things like manage state or have a context outside of myself or handle events, for example. And so that's what React hooks are. Is there an ability to not write classes and override methods like component did update or did mount or things like that, but having a single pure function for the actual component content to render it and have a function to use to inject or access things like state. It's a little bit of a mind bender when you first work with it. So this top to blog post is a pretty interesting one. Um, they have an example hook, which uh, they have an example uh, hook here called use stale refresh. And so the idea of this thing is it's a hook that someone wrote uh, that deals with state uh, I won't go further than that. Uh, and then when something happens outside of it, there's an effect. And the, the idea of the effect is that something outside of your component triggered an event or something. And when that event is triggered, uh, best I can explain this, then this particular hook will add some things to state or update state. I'll say that this is a more complex example on the get-go, but the bottom line is it gives you an idea. These are functions they usually start with the word use, like use state, use effect, uh, and things like that, use context. Um, and there's like, I don't know, I don't know how many, there are like 10 or 8 or something, those main ones built in to, to React. And then there's others that you can use from different frameworks. Um, so the bottom line is, if this is an effect, you want to be able to test it. So this blog article uh, goes about trying to figure out like what the, what the effect is supposed to do. And then goes ahead and defines test cases for this article or for this for this function, um, and then basically he has a really kind of good way a good layout of it. And so, for example, one of the things you need to do is you need to mock things like the actual fetch API. The fetch API is the API that this particular component is using to do the network request. Um, and so, the fetch mock um, it basically acts like it's running asynchronously by doing a timeout. And then when it's got done with the timeout, it re returns an answer, which is a JSON object. Well, it provides a JSON function, which then resolves a promise with the data in it. So it gives you a technique. Not that we have to like understand this, but uh, if you're a TypeScript person, you'll probably say, oh, cool, that's how I do that. Um, the bottom line is that you, uh, or I should say a React hooks person, you'll be able to see this technique as a way of like faking out a mock. And instead of, Instead of actually going to the network, it's mocking the network call asynchronously um, at 200 to up to 500 milliseconds of pause, which is kind of like acting like it's going to the network. Um, and then they're using Jest. So if you're going to be doing any kind of testing in uh, React, you're going to end up using Jest as a testing tool for the most part, because Jest as a testing framework has things like spies, 
So you can say, for example, you know, if I hit this thing called fetch, bring back the mock implementation of fetch, a fake implementation of fetch. Um, and so it's kind of a framework for doing things before and after all tests. And then I'll scroll down a little further. Then for each test, there's a before each and an after each. Um, and then the tests are called it. Right? So if you've done any JavaScript testing in the past five years, before each, after each, it, and before all, after all are pretty standard functioning for Jasmine, for um, uh, Karma, and in this case for Jest. Jest happens to also work with a uh, render library. Uh, there's a there's a library out there that can do rendering. Um, and so I believe this is using, and I can't remember the name of the, of the tool here. Uh, it's a high prep for this, clearly. But there's there's a uh, there's a tool um, that they're using for this. Let me just grab this real quick. Go to the GitHub. So render is coming from React DOM. Okay, so they're actually and there and there are oh Enzyme is the one I'm thinking of, by the way. So Enzyme is a testing library, and there's also React test library, and now apparently even in React DOM, um, you can go ahead and render a component in a test. Right? So the interesting thing they're doing here is they're rendering this component they're testing, and that component has mocked functions that act like they're going to Ajax, but are really doing a spawn. So anyway, I know I'm kind of going all over the map here, but, you know, just a yeah, go ahead. Quick question. So, and sure. if there's not a quick answer to this, you can just say, you know, we can talk it offline, but yeah, when yeah, would yeah. you choose, when would you choose functional components and hooks over class-based components? <laughs> well, I have some developer friends who say everything will be a functional component, uh, and they go, they go functional crazy. Um, I think if it's a component that mostly uh, works well as a function for rendering, but has a light amount of state, it's it's a, a good thing to potentially use a function for because it kind of simplifies the code. Um, if it's a thing like a form, I know there are things where you can use state to inject a form. I personally feel using a class is better than that. But this one developer I'm thinking of, and I think you know his name, uh, would probably say, no, you can do a functional component for that too. <laughs> Hi, Matt. Uh, <laughs> but but seriously, uh, it, it's kind of one of those things where there are, uh, people are if people are functionally geared, they can find a way to do a lot of things with functional components and hooks. Um, and it seems like it's the direction that a lot of newer React developers are taking. Um, I personally work with class-based libraries, so it doesn't bother me to do class-based React. But what it does is it gets rid of having a lot of special callbacks. And so instead of the callbacks, you're using these functions instead. It's just a stylistic difference. Um, and it keeps you from accidentally throwing too much in a state because you have to really work hard to inject state, for example, by using use state, right? So you, you're now writing a function to define the state outside of the component itself, so to speak, and you're managing it directly. So I don't know if that's a good answer at all, but... Bottom line is that, that functional developers will appreciate the these libraries. Um, Matt actually mentioned before that uh, Vue 3 has a, a hooks-based approach to things as well. So they're they're switching their event model and their state management model to hooks as well. Um, but this article at least has an example of testing hooks. Um, and, you know, it may not be the only technique to use. And certainly some of our developers might feel differently and say, well, I do it this way. 
Um, I might send this up to them and maybe have a feedback for you next week on what they use. So, but anyway, that's a that's a uh, hooks testing example on Toptal, and just to give the guy credit, uh, Avi Aryan. Okay. Okay. Um, let me just double check. I didn't skip something here. Oops. Well, that's nice. Yeah, next up, Adafruit Neo Trellis M4 Express. I want this thing. Uh, let me tell you what it is. It's a circuit board uh, from Adafruit. Now, Adafruit, um, it's like the, and and I don't know, Sue John, if you'll recognize this, this term, but Edmund Scientific of our day. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. Right? Edmund Scientific was a New Jersey-based company that had a mail-order catalog back in the 70s and 80s and probably 60s. Um, and it was the... Now we do maker stuff, like everyone who hacks on things, they call them makers, right? Um, but back then, that was the place you would go or order from to build your own telescope, to build your own electronics stuff. Um, and that and Radio Shack. I spent a lot of time with both of those as a, a young nerd. Um, and, you know, everyone's uh, experimenting with Arduinos and Raspberry Pis and things like that. And now there's a lot of actual applications being written for IoT devices. Uh, you know, Internet of Things devices that are running on these types of microcontrollers. We had a whole show on this uh, uh, about a year ago, uh, IoT on AWS. You can look up on our videos. But uh, so one of the things uh, that this, this particular group does is they find interesting electronics and they package them and sell them as kits. So, for example, there are these things called Feather, uh, the Feather, which are nice little ESP286, 386 um, chips that do all sorts of things, like some are Wi-Fi enabled, some are yeah, data I think loggers. Ages, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, um, but they found this other board. This Neo Trellis M4 uh, is an audio board uh, running SAMD51 as the chip. Uh, it's a, a Cortex M4 core running at 120 megahertz. It has support for Circuit Python and Arduino. And for me, the cool thing is it's got a hardware digital signal processing support. Um, and two digital audio converters. So you could do stereo audio processing on the board. Me being a guitar player and hacking around with music all my life, I want to make a stomp box out of this thing. <laughs> uh, and that's one of the things they say you can do with it. So the idea is nowadays a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, effects for guitar players are actually using digital signal processing. Um, Line 6 has one called the Helix, and there are a bunch of other ones out there um, that, that do this. And so... You used to have to go and buy a pedal for each sound you wanted to make and wire them all together yourself with, with cables. And now you can literally, like a computer, drag around blocks and say, this is the this is the wah pedal, this is the chorus, this is the flanger, this is the distortion, this is the amp. And you can move them around. Um, you can do the same thing in, yeah. in this and program your own. Yeah, Susan. Oh, no, I, I don't know if it was, it, you were cutting in and out a lot. Oh, was I? Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, so just to restate, the idea is this is a uh, this is a SAMD51 based uh, Cortex board, Cortex on four board that has digital signal processors and audio to digital converters for two stereo inputs. Um, so the cool thing is they support Circuit Python. So if you want to hack around with it on Python, um, you can also uh, hack around with it on Arduino. So they have uh, different things there as well. The other cool thing about it is if you flip onto the other side, it's got a bunch of NeoPixels in a grid and switches around them. And this kit sells you, which is really cool, 
it sells you the board sandwiched with a bunch of buttons that light up the NeoPixels that you can then program. And you can even control an audio processing tool like Ableton Live, which is a, a music making tool on the Mac and PC, um, and use it to like trigger loops and samples. So this thing is really cool. Um, and the thing that blew my mind about it was it's 50 bucks or 60 bucks. So yeah, I want this thing. Um, I'm going to get a hold of this thing and play around with it next month because I think that would be a fun thing to try out. Certainly, the stuff that you're able to get from places like Adafruit and other places now for hardware to experience, uh, experiment with is unbelievable. And this is just like another step up. So I really want to hear what this thing can do. And I thought that was a really nifty. Let's talk about Go. All right, hold on. One second here. Sure. I knew I threw so, you, I threw you a hard throw there. Guys. No, it's, I it's at least for me it's choppy, so I it, yeah. it got cut off. And then when I heard you say it, I was like, oh, okay. So this is yeah. technically not breaking news, or I would call most recent dev news, but the the actual hoax from last week or whatever. So um, the really cool website changelog.com, um, and in this case, there's a, a Go podcast called Go Time, which you know disclaimer I haven't listened to before. This is the first time I listened to it. Um, so I'm sure it's really popular with, with Go folks, but anyway, they interviewed, um, the key person behind, uh, the effort to get healthcare.gov back on its feet. If you guys all remember oh, wow. from a couple years ago, the site came out and it basically crashed right away and it couldn't handle the load and all yep. the peaks. Um, and he makes a couple really great observations, which I'll get into, but basically, he was actually involved in the, the president at that time, their re-election campaign and the software behind the voting and things around that. And they did a great job with that, that they remember when this thing happened and they basically the White House called him and said, can you help us out? We're gathering a small team of people to work on this. And he's like, yeah, absolutely. Um, but a couple of really interesting observations he made. So they basically took the software that was running. And we're very pragmatic about it. They didn't just say, okay, we're going to rewrite this whole thing and gut it. They with this team and said, you're going to work on it. We're going to help you instill best practices from the industry and stuff like that. And they worked on it and they got it piecemeal to where it is now, which is a, like almost like a cloud native application, but it's running on government um, premises, data centers. But uh, so my daughter uses these too much and they're loose. Uh, anyway, so, you know, one of the first things he said was exercise your path to production as early as possible, even if it's a whole hello world app. And that means like, you know, write hello world and get every, get your CI CD pipeline, get your deployment, get your containerizing, get your DNS, get auto scaling, get all of that fleshed out, templated running before you do anything else. Because that allows you to obviously iterate a lot faster on top of that, but it allows you to yeah. find issues faster. Um, it, it also, before you write a ton of software and then you press deploy, um, you don't want to find out later when you load spike or something. Oh, I didn't have auto scaling enabled or, you know, I didn't mm -hmm. do this or that. So that was a really interesting observation he made, which they did piecemeal on that project. Um, he goes, the higher the stakes, the bigger your audience, the simpler your software should be. Don't try to be clever. Things break in a nonlinear fashion. When you have all these different microservices and different things running, when things break, they break in a catastrophic way. And they're very hard to debug. 
very hard to figure out. The problem doesn't end up just being one area, and you got to kind of go through everything to figure that out. So he said, you know, don't be clever, be pragmatic. Um, when you're working on uh, kind of triaging things, prioritize your defects. So their main goal for healthcare.gov was to get up and running again, not to refactor mm-hmm. everything, not to make it the best code base ever. So they did a lot of interesting things like um, they would queue all the requests coming in um, for registrations, for invites, for, and they would get the email address. They had a script up that uh, on the web page that would run in JavaScript, produce a JSON object that had like the user information, email and stuff. They would send it to a server that would get queued. And then when the load went down during the day, they would send invites out based off email and say, okay, hey, you can go in and log in now. And well, you know, work on your stuff. And they even had pages like when things were really bad. Hey, we're busy right now. So they they said, don't you don't need to be clever and smart right away. When they had this large system with tons of people using it and battering it, they would bring the system down for for certain people. They would queue requests and handle them later and provide links later. So they did all these things to ease load, to increase the user experience, get kind of faith of users back. As they started adding things like breaking things into microservices, doing auto scaling. Um, another interesting thing was their approach to working with people. You know, we, we all like to think we're the smartest people in the world and we work with a bunch of engineers, but they had a really good approach of working with other people and advising them, not telling them to do and taking over, not deleting their code and throwing it away and saying, you guys suck. These guys were under enormous pressure. It was on the news every day. It yeah. on every TV, it was on every podcast and radio station. So they worked with them to teach them how to refactor their code and, and piecemeal add best practices. I thought that whole approach you should definitely listen to this podcast. Um, I, I think the guy had you know really good head on his shoulders. And the reason they, they chose Go for some key components uh, was because of his concurrency, because of his channels. It was really fast to develop small components that could handle high load and high concurrency mm-hmm. really well. So he's an for high volume, high concurrency type components. Um, I thought that was uh, really interesting. And there's something I'll mention at the end of the podcast. There's something their podcast does that I thought was pretty cool that I wanted to bring up as a suggestion. Um, That's so great, though, later. yeah. It's just very pragmatic and very... They're, they're not just like gutting everything and moving on, these other people probably knew a lot about what was wrong or the system they were building too. So if you can coach them as to how to write the code better, you're gaining also the fact that they were immersed in it for a while. So they know the business and everything else. And they're probably, as you know, ultimately a better job than you picking it up from scratch and throwing them out. Yeah. As you know, yesterday you and I and and keep for debugging an issue. Same thing they mentioned in this podcast, you know, the, Having mon- monitoring and observability from day one. Yeah. You know, the fact that you can see what's going on in your system, you can get the metrics, you can go and search your logs. Everything does get logged. So you can actually yeah. trace things and figure out what happened and see a transaction all the way through and see exactly what's happening when is, is key. And, you know, I'm working kind of on a side thing right now to doing Python, Django, REST, Docker. Um, gonna add Kubernetes to that, doing Prometheus for metrics. And I'm going to have Grafana dashboards and then deploy that to AWS. But I'm kind of taking the same advice as guys giving, like, I'm, I want to, I'm, I have like two or three endpoints, really simple endpoints and a simple data model right now. By the way, Python mm-hmm. Django migrations are awesome, but that's, we can talk about that next time. Um, we, have to, we have to make a session for that because 
we haven't talked nearly enough about Python and Django on this podcast. Uh, so, yeah. uh, so I'm going through that, like trying to do a thin slice all the way through, including monitoring and containerization and, you know, um, orchestration and deploying to AWS before I add any actual real business logic. Right, right. Very cool. And we have, I think we have Eric next week too, if I remember correctly. So, um, yeah, Eric Snyder is coming on the podcast next week. So we'll be talking a bit about, I believe, Python and things like that uh, with cool. him so we can kick the tires a little more. Awesome. That's very cool. All right, that's great. I'm definitely going to listen to that. Good good things to think about. Here's another complete left field one. Um, hey, did you know you can actually make uh, iron into a fuel to, to like, create, you know, energy, or to, to actually create things like turn a turbine? Yeah, Vampire. not that kind of iron, Sujan. <laughs> the one in the ground, not the one in your walls. The tough guy, yeah. So apparently, uh, you can, and they've done this at a Dutch brewery, you can grind iron into a fine powder. This makes me, this blows my mind. And you, you know, they're putting it through a funnel and they feed a furnace. So if they heat it high enough, it burns. And what it's doing is it's oxidizing, just like everything that is on fire oxidizes. But it turns out that you get you know, ultimately iron oxide, uh, which is rust, and it's the only emission. There's no carbon. Uh, and then it turns out you can take that iron oxide, <laughs> this is nuts, apply electricity to it and get back to iron. So you've got a feedback loop. And what they're saying here in this article is that if you could figure out a way to do that with renewable energy, think about it, right? You have solar energy or whatever powering the electricity that you do these bursts in. I don't know if that actually will make enough energy to do it, but they're saying if you can use wind or solar or some other zero carbon power generation systems, hydro, you could turn that iron back in the iron uh, rust back into fuel to some degree. It's not, I'm sure you lose some every time, but you're getting some more efficiency in the system doing it that way. So yeah, this, this brewery is using it, uh, as I guess they're heating stuff with it, but it's a clean, sustainable fuel for combustion. And iron, as we were talking about yesterday in the prep, is everywhere. It's in the ground. Yeah. You can extract it from things very easily. It's not difficult to find. Uh, what a cool idea, you know? So this is an article just kind of talking about it. Uh, let's see. As a burnable clean energy storage medium, this is on newatlas.com, uh, iron powers advantages include the fact that it's cheap and abundant, the fact that it's easy to transport and has a good energy density, high burning temperature. I guess it won't explode on you. And the fact that unlike hydrogen, for example, it doesn't need to be cryogenically cooled or lose any energy during long periods of storage. That's a good point, too. Right? Very wow. interesting stuff. So the more yeah. we start getting innovative again with this stuff, and we really have to find more alternative fuels, that's a cool alternative fuel. Yeah. I mean, and so much yeah. is being done on that front. I was reading things the other day about 3D printing graphene. Graphene like this miraculous wonder material, which... Tons of ideas, patents, and papers on, but no one's been able to do anything with it because it's hard to produce, hard to get. Is, very it, is it a superconductor? Is that what it is? Hmm. I forget what it is. Oh, no. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, but they're so, looking so at right. three D printing it with other substrates and materials, and that's cool. I mean, that is going to be amazing if they're able to do like three D printing solar panels, all sorts of. And so, yes, the alternative energy. Like, I, I don't think we understand or realize what the next century is going to look like when it comes to alternative energy. I think things are going to be fantastic, fabulous, as long as we put more money into it and research into it. That's the key, right? I mean, I think for many, many years, the oil and gas industry had a lock on 
everything, you know, because that's where you got your fuel, you know. Yeah. Um, but now that we're running out and now that it's getting more expensive and now that we have, you know, the atmosphere heating up because of too much emission, um, we've got to get really, really innovative. And, you know, it seems like we're starting to. And, yeah, I just hope it keeps improving and improving. So, cool. Hey, you have another cool one. The Hyperloop. Yeah. First so test. I've been hearing about this Hyperloop thing for years now. You know, Elon, I think, had initi- initiated the idea or was a big proponent of it several years yeah. back. But I think he started doing this boring, his Elon boring thing in Vegas or building underground transportation. I don't know where they got with that. I think they built actually a small segment of it. Um, yeah. But I don't know if they actually built a vehicle to test it out. But anyway, Virgin, um, of Virgin Atlantic, Virgin Airlines, whatever, uh, yeah. they have built the Hyperloop and from Santa Clarita to Pasadena. I know nothing about California, just all this, all the towns sound really cool. Take the 504 um, to the, yeah. <laughs> the, Obviously, I know nothing, but so, there's a comedy bit about that on Santa Clarita Live. But anyway. This is, the Hyperloop, just for those who don't know, is basically a large glass tube, right? It's, Intended to carry passengers in small pods, think like Jetsons, right? Um, mm-hmm. oh, there's people that don't know what Jetsons is. Anyway, I'm dating myself there. <laughs> through a vacuum, through a vacuum tube. Um, and it kind of reminds me of the pneumatic mail tubes. Like people just <laughs> through yeah. the, but anyway. You're also dating um, yourself there too. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Um, anyway. 500, so the, te- and the test run, which was between Santa Clarita and Pasadena, it was 500 meters. Sorry, no, couldn't have been. Well, anyway, 500 like meters yeah. in, 50, mm-hmm. in 15 seconds, which is 33 meters a second, 107 feet per second. That's how fast it was traveling, which is That's insane. Yes, I think two test passengers in there. I wonder who decided, hey, I'll be the first one to try this out. <laughs> you know what they did? What? Two interns. <laughs> yeah, probably. Like, hey, this is you your too. first You have a great assignment coming up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First day on the job, get in. <laughs> Shove you in. We hope to see you on the other side. Um, Get comfy. This is going to be a fun ride. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's only going to last 15 seconds, so don't worry. Um, hmm. Apparently, it's going to production will go 220 miles um, per hour, which is, I mean, that's just mind-boggling. You say 220 so miles an hour? 600, 620 miles an hour. What? So they're saying a trip, a trip between San Francisco and Los Angeles would be 45 minutes. I just yeah. want to point out something that may, maybe they haven't thought about. <laughs> there are fault lines all over <laughs> California. I sure hope they figured out how earthquakes would affect this. As you're going along at 650 miles an hour and the ground shakes it. Ooh. But it yeah, sounds it has, like, really, rock, really interesting. Rockets on it. And yeah, I just, yeah, and yeah. Why does all the cool stuff that happen in California? I don't get it. Well, some things that are cool happen, like fires, but... Um, Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. there's so but, much I mean, innovation. Tech, yeah, tech wise, tech wise. Yes, earthquakes, fires, oh. floods. But but the thing is, you're right. There's so much cool stuff, and that is really interesting. So it's inter- I didn't yeah. re- even realize that Virgin was doing a hyperloop. I thought that was just Elon. Hmm. That's what I thought too. But yeah, all this yeah. talk, you know, we're talking about fast transportation. We're talking about deep learning. Talking about alternative energies. You know, I was re- this is not in the list of links, but I was reading something um, about a, re- a research university where the students have built kind of a a skin, like, you know, electronic chips that are flexible. Um, you can stretch them up to like six inches without losing anything or, or, or degrading the electric signal. Um, it can rip and the chemical bonds will, uh, like after a half an hour. So they basically heal, they, they form again. So like skin, it can actually, you can rip the circuit, but it, it, 
it, the bonds it brings it back together and heals Rip. Um, wow! And it, it's it's thicker than a band aid, and obviously it's probably not going to feel great. So it's not as thin as they'd want it to be at, but it's safe for your skin. It can you can slap it on, and ideas like you can do temperature sensing, heart rate, pulse oximetry, mm-hmm. things like that that you do with a Fitbit or an Apple Watch right now. But it's as thin as your skin, and so the you know wearables and all that, pretty freaking cool. You know, it's wild. I was at South by Southwest. We we did a booth there in 2017. And there, that was one of the booths was, was that mm-hmm. printed skin type. I didn't have the healing properties at the time, but they're like, look, we, we printed out a sensor to do blood pressure monitoring or to do something else like salinity or something like that, that, that you could tape onto your body. And that was the idea. So I'll bet that's the same group of people, you know, oh, same researchers. Yeah. It's neat. So. Yeah, was it a working product that you saw? It was. It was. It looked like a lot of market wear, you know, where they had like the papers out and everything, and they had like one little thing you could look at. Um, so it was probably in the early concept stages. They're probably looking for funding. I don't know if it was the same group or not, but it was the same concept, which is really cool. It was around medical, like putting it on your on your skin, um, and sure. and having and they had like a printed circuit board that would just kind of like get whatever sensing they needed out of your skin, and it could like bend in all different different ways. So probably the same concept. Very cool. All right. So that is our development news and, you know, other tech science tidbits for the week. Uh, Sujan, thanks a lot for being on this week. It's been really helpful. A lot of fun. Absolutely. So I wanted to suggest one idea. um, Yeah, go ahead. So the the Go Time podcast, they had a cool thing at the end, which is the unpopular opinion of the week or day. I think ours is a weekly thing. So I was wondering your thoughts on starting an unpopular opinion of the week. (laughs) <laughs> tech tech related yeah. only tech related we'll have to try that do you have one already well there, <laughs> i have two so okay one was what you brought it up earlier today actually in the, in the podcast was chrome so my unpopular <laughs> opinion of the day we may not be on is chrome is a new internet explorer i mean like you said it's becoming bloated slow the memory hall mm-hmm. and they're Pushing a lot of non-standard stuff. Now they are helping move standards forward and underlying they're using standards, but they're doing a lot of things that other browsers are not doing yet. And in that mm-hmm. way, I mean, let's be honest, some of that is Google's own agenda. I mean, it, it is what it is, but that is not that different from Microsoft, you know, way back in the day when it comes to Internet Explorer. I think it's, it's approaching that territory. That's my, the other, on un, uh, the other unpopular opinion. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Um, at was, I, I heard on the good time thing was a, uh, you know, this, this guy basically in his opinion, server surrender is more optimal and a better approach than single page applications. See, repeat that because you were you were bleeping and booping and bopping. Oh, um, server side rendering is better um, approach than static uh, than single page applications. Now, to me, that's a big, that. it depends. There are different yeah. use cases for both. And you're seeing the swing back towards server side with things like Next.js and other things. But that's, it's yeah. still an unpopular opinion to say that that's better than SPAs. All right, I got mine. And it's it's obvious because I always, I'm, I'm the one that's like the old dude stamping around going Rah, about this, is I think serverless functions everywhere is going to implode under its own frustrating weight of configuration. I think that serverless services like, yeah, the serverless services like, um, you know, serverless 
Aurora, you know, and other services you take advantage of that are already put together in Fab are great. But if you're using, if you're building an application out of like 50 lambdas, I feel like unless we do something about simplifying the way you do those things, it's it's going to be difficult to, to say, I'm going to write my app in lambdas. I still think containers are the way to go. That's my semi-unpopular. It's unpopular for the cool kids that are doing everything lambda. And I look at the serverless framework, I'm like, that looks really cool. And every time I mess with it, I'm like, I need to know a lot more that I don't know. Um, but I don't have that same friction if I put a Docker container together and throw some things out there. And at the same time, there are a lot of great Amazon services that are serverless that you don't manage. They are managed by Amazon, which you can just use because they're just endpoints and API calls. So that's that's my unpopular opinion. And I'm sure everyone else will flog me for it. At TechCast. Well, I tend to agree with you on that, so. <laughs> Show me, man. Yeah, I'm working, actually doing a, doing a project right now, my, my side project, where I'm kind of rewriting this game that I have. And um, I'm trying to make the, the, the back end of it uh, a series of AWS services. And I was trying to be all friendly with Serverless again, and with uh, Serverless Sam. And I'm wrestling with it right now. So maybe my opinion will change in a couple of weeks. You know, I like to test my assumptions. All right, cool. So if you like this podcast, uh, uh, by the way, hi, Rich Friedman. Uh, we have Rich has, has uh, said some stuff in the chat. If you want to chat when you're watching this, please use the chat and talk to us. Uh, you can hit us at, at TechCast as well on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Other than that, we will see you next week. Next week, we have Eric Snyder coming in. And he's going to be focusing on some uh, Python-ish data science-y things, I believe. Uh, we'll get kind of his view on things. Otherwise, make it a great week, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for inviting me. Hope I get invited again. You will get invited again, Sue John. Absolutely. <laughs> All, right. All right. See you on the other side of the week.